Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second birthday episode of Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're doing a movie that we have talked about doing, I think, since like before we even started the podcast. Yeah, I think this one has like eternally been on the list. (laughs) (laughs) And we've talked about it many times, but in honor of our 52nd episode, our second birthday episode, yay! We made it through the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, we're still in the pandemic, technically. Technically. But I guess we're now in the endemic. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) Yeah, whatever it means. You should still get vaccinated. That's what it means. Yeah. But yeah, this is our second birthday episode. So we decided to do a movie that we talk about all the time and gets talked about all the time. It's 21 years old now. Wait, no. Oh my God, it's 31 years it's old. 31. I made myself feel really old just then. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's 20. No. Yeah. 90s were 30. All years my favorite ago. albums from the 90s are turning 30. And I'm just like, I can't even. <laughs> but we're talking about Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Well, it's called Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's his version of Dracula. So, yes. He said that he named it that because there's a tradition of naming movies that are based on books with the author's name at the beginning. Like, The Godfather is actually Mario Puzo's The Godfather. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But people also speculate that was to get around the fact that Universal had the copyright on the word, the name Dracula. Yeah, yeah. So kind of interesting. But that's what we're talking about today. Because it's our birthday and we get to do whatever we want. So we're going to talk about vampires. Yay. (laughs) It's our favorite thing to talk about. Of course. Not only that, movies that are queer coded. Oh, yes. (laughs) Which, I mean, I don't think Francis Ford Coppola is queer, but he works with a lot of actors and actresses. And his daughter is certainly a director who queer codes a lot of her films. So I would say that it's not a far leap to say that the entire story of Dracula in general, from its roots, from its founding, is queer-coded. And I think that that comes through in this movie. Oh, definitely, yeah. He said when he made this film that he wanted it to appear as an erotic nightmare. Mm-hmm. And yes, achieved. Thank you, sir. And, and I give him props for making it not just a straight erotic nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been very easy to do in 1992. Yeah, absolutely. So props to you, Francis Ford Coppola. Yep. And I always say all three of his names. I mean, you gotta. I don't know how to address him otherwise. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love the three name thing. It's like so majestic. It is. Yeah. I wish Sofia Coppola would just go by her first middle and last name. (laughs) And I'm going to look up her middle name because I want to know what it is. It's probably something Italian. Carmina. Oh, yeah. Of course. Perfect. Sophia Carmina Coppola. And that's what that's how I refer to her in the future. And people will be like, why do you say it like that? Like, because you duh. gotta. Why? Why not? <laughs> why not? Why are you asking the question? So 
Bram Stoker's Dracula, where even to begin? Let's talk about the history a little bit okay, of sure. Dracula. Sure. And I'm saying this because I just actually recorded, and I'm not sure if it's going to be released by the time that this episode, it will be released by the time this episode comes out. Episode 48 of We Effed Up that I recorded not too long ago was actually about Dracula because it's coming out on Halloween. Oh, perfect. Um, So we talked about the history of that. And Bram Stoker, when he developed Dracula as a novel, did draw a little bit on the history of Vlad Sepesh, of Dracula, and the goings-on in Wallachia, which is where Vlad Sepesh was from. Pretty interesting. And actually, this movie kind of delves in a little bit deeper into the history because in the book, there's not a lot of history that Bram Stoker brings into the book. Mostly, it's just the name and the fact that he's from an Eastern European country and was a great warrior. Yeah. But in this movie, actually, at the very beginning, there is a scene where Dracula is about to go out on this big battle. And it's all but assured that he's going to lose. He has a very small army up against a really big army. And the kind of vignette that we see, which is really cool, very theatrical, you know, this like silhouetted um, slaughter is actually based off of the battle. It's referenced historically as the the night attack at Targoviste, which is where Vlad had a secret attack where he would like he went into this camp full of people and he was just going to kill the leader. Well, he went into the wrong tent and he didn't kill the leader. The leader got away, but it was overall a very successful battle. So I thought that was kind of interesting that Coppola actually brought some of that real life history into his story, even though all of the rest of it, you could probably throw out the window and say that's not historically accurate. At least that part is kind of interesting. And really moving forward from this film, we see a lot of Dracula and vampire media using that Vlad history, you know, that that historical basis for this character, especially in like film and comic books and and video games to some degree too. Because, you know, after this, we had things like Dracula Untold, which I'm just going to say I liked. I know people had mixed feelings about it, but whatever. I liked it. Mm -hmm. It was part of one of like four different failed attempts to reboot the Universal Monsters. And that really, that movie almost entirely focused on the sort of historical basis for that character. Likewise, our local ballet company, they have done a a Dracula ballet based more on the novel for years and years, which I loved, but about... Five years ago or so, they did a new version called Dracula Bloodlines, Mm -hmm. where act one is that Vlad, that history, and then act two is more of the traditional novel, you know, Mina and Jonathan Harker and Van Helsing and all of that. So I think there's been, since this movie, a renewed interest in that historical basis for the character. That's really cool. And I like that because the history of Vlad Dracula is very cool and is interesting and he ended up becoming a folk hero in the like late 1800s early 1900s that people clung to when they were looking for their own country to be free they looked at this like folk hero a guy who battled and won multiple times to try and keep sovereignty of this country and you know obviously in time since there's been a lot of uh, restructuring of eastern europe and country lines changing and allegiances changing and all of that. But 
Vlad really, like Vlad Dracula actually really kept on as a folk hero for people who are like, no, you know, we should have our own independence. We should be the ones ruling ourselves. So it's interesting that they turn him into this like mythical, huge evil villain, kind of incidentally. Like, clearly, he was a terrifying ruler. He did for 60 miles line the roads after this battle with dead bodies on stakes. It gets really graphic. It's like yeah. mothers with children and like all this stuff for 60 whole miles. So as the leader of this country was coming through, he had to pass 60 miles oh of this. God. So very awful. Yeah. But that now he's turned into this like mythic, you know, supernatural being incidentally. Very cool and weird that Bram Stoker would pick him. I think he was just like, you know what? That sounds cool. Yeah. I'm just going to take that. <laughs> And now he's turned into this, like, you know, Dracula is synonymous with uh, vampires at this point. And you can't think about vampires without thinking about Dracula. And specifically this iteration, this, like, Gary Oldman iteration of Dracula, I think. Yeah, well, and, you know, to talk about transforming a real historical figure into, you know, kind of this figure of epic myth into this then mythological supernatural being even then the transformation of Dracula as a character, you know, if we just talk cinematically here, going from Nosferatu to Bram Stoker to Christopher Lee to Gary Oldman, and I know I'm leaving out a bunch, but those are kind of our biggest icons if we're tracing the cinematic history of Dracula. Like the steps there from Nosferatu, you know, Max Schreck, the very othered looking and feeling, you know, kind of silent but sympathetic, but also horrific character to, you know, the king of suave, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, to uh, Christopher Lee's, you know, decidedly sterner, but sexier Dracula, to then Gary Oldman, who meshes all three into this simultaneously, like, grotesque, suave, but ultimately, like, driven by love character. Right. It's just fascinating. It is, and kudos to Coppola to mesh all of the phases of him together. Yeah. Like, to take the step to make him ugly and old and weird towards the beginning of the movie. And then, you know, he's got the creature form where he's a beast. He's like a wolf almost. And I don't want to say he's fully a wolf because he's like half bat, half wolf. Yeah, yeah. But then also to have like the sexy, refined Dracula version Very, very interesting choice to do all of those things when normally we just get one kind of iteration. Like you get the Nosferatu or you get the Bela Lugosi version where he's all the time wearing the very nice tuxedo with his like star medal on, you know. So it is interesting to see all of those kind of brought together in the same film. So you have like the weaker, not as powerful, conserving energy Dracula where he's old and he's got the really strange hair situation happening in the big, long red cloak. And then he devours an entire ship worth of people yeah, and becomes sexy Dracula, <laughs> looking more like he did in life. So let's talk about the hair thing for a second, because I know when this movie first came out, The particular look you're talking about is when Jonathan Harker at the beginning of the film goes to Dracula's castle in Mm -hmm. Transylvania. And, you know, this look has become iconic. He's wearing the long red cloak and he's got the weird hair situation. 
And everyone is like, where did that come from? You know, it's such an iconic choice. It's been mimicked throughout pop culture. Uh, The Simpsons kind of did it most notably with Mr. Burns. So that look comes from the costume designer, Aiko Ishiika, who was born in Japan and is known for like costuming like films that have really iconic looks, uh, including The Cell from Mm. the year 2000, Mm -hmm. which, you know, when we think about the costumes from that film, also super, super iconic and super different than what we are accustomed to coming from like a more Western cinema, American eye. She combined sort of Victorian costuming with traditional kabuki theater costuming and traditional costuming and hairstyles that geishas would wear. Mm -hmm. And the wigs in particular, she crafted them, uh, she and her costumers crafted them in a traditional opera style, which is this very specific way of threading the wigs so that they both have really good structural integrity for being employed on the stage, but they also have this sort of larger than life, like realistic, semi-realistic look that you need for opera because your audience is going to be potentially much further back in a live theater setting. And so I didn't realize it until I read this about the costume designer. That wig does look very traditional Japanese theater-esque. You Mm -hmm. know, when you look at the styling of it and you look at photos or etchings of both kabuki theater and traditional geisha costuming, that's exactly where that comes from. So it's really cool to have that sort of added cultural influence. And you can see that cultural influence to the costuming, especially Dracula's costuming throughout the entire film. Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because the robe that he's wearing that you referenced, that red robe, it looks very traditionally Japanese. Yeah. It's not belted, which you would see in more European style robes, dressing gowns, things like that. It's open and it has an open collar, but it doesn't have a lapel, which is another right. um, kind of more Asian influenced wardrobe choice. So very interesting. It's also embroidered really beautifully, which yes. you do see embroidering in especially that like late 19th century fashion. There is some embroidery, but this one is very specifically looks Japanese. Yeah. And if you start to look for it throughout there's that costume, there's the gold robe that we see him in very briefly, and especially the final robe, the red one that he's wearing during the death scene at the very, very end of the film. That is very much crafted to be a traditional kabuki theater garment. I think that that person was also responsible for making his armor at the beginning yes. of the movie. The weird, like, muscly looking armor, which looks very similar to some of the costuming that was done in the cell. Yes, exactly. And it's really cool, just in general. So (laughs) if we just kind of go down that thread, the costuming in this movie were just absolutely insane. Yeah, it's iconic. Francis Ford Coppola knew that he wanted non-traditional costuming blended with period costuming. He didn't know how to articulate what he wanted. He simply said, I want it to look weird. And by weird, I mean not normal. (laughs) And so <laughs> and so he really just let his costumer, you know, trusted her and trusted her instincts to make something that, again, contributed to that erotic nightmare kind of feel of the film that felt, you know, otherworldly or just like adjacent to what we would expect for a period piece to get that kind of like intriguing discomfort. Like, I think that so much of this movie is about like having 
what you expect next to something that's a little unexpected and is intriguing and is sexy, but is also uncomfortable. Like, yeah. That's what really makes this film work visually. And it's awesome that they took so much care in making these costumes because I would say that the only person who has really unremarkable costuming has to be Jonathan. Right. Just very traditional, you know, British male kind of costuming. Dracula, we've already talked about, but like when he comes to London after his voyage on the Demeter, he's wearing a very typical looking kind of style of outfit, but he has these purple accents, yeah. which you wouldn't normally see. And you actually can see in the folks around he and Mina when they meet up on the street, they're wearing brown, black, gray, very drab colors, which is typical for the time. But Mina is dressed in all green, very yes. bright green. She has like a tiny top hat on. And Dracula's got these long flowing locks, purple glasses, which he wears ostensibly because it's daytime and the light hurts his eyes. Who knows? Yeah. And he has like these purple accents, very tall top hat. And that's become a very iconic look for him. Lucy is the same way. You kind of see her provocative, uh, sexual nature in the way that she's dressed. She's always wearing very low collars, as where Mina wears very high collars throughout. And that could be also because like, Lucy becomes the bride of Dracula there yes. for a while, as where Mina is a little bit more reserved, though not much. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. take a lot for the dominoes to fall, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Van Helsing. Van Helsing is like this world traveler, metaphysical, physician, pseudoscience dude. And he's wearing like this kind of rugged outfit, but he also has this really cool gold like sash cape yeah. on when he comes in. And he's just like smoking a cigar the whole time. The cowboy guy, I think his name's Quincy. He's wearing a very traditional, like, British dude, you know, cravat but in a vest. But the vest has, like, this Native American pattern on it. And he's wearing, like, a leather-fringed jacket over top, <laughs> which is very out of place. Yeah. Arthur, Lucy's betrothed. He's, you know, looking very dapper. He's got, like, red coat on sometimes. And then Dr. Seward, who is... Sometimes has like these really weird suspenders on, uh huh, like very wide suspenders, kind of attached in strange places, and looking more, I would say, not as well off as other folks. But every single one of them has like traditional with like a little twist of weird in it, especially when they come into contact with Dracula. Then you know you get like these big red sweeping gowns and yeah. There's a point where he wears an all-white tuxedo with, like, this beautiful embroidered cravat. And it's like, where, did, where <laughs> do you even find something like this? I mean, you couldn't, but yeah, uh, it's just beautiful all the way around. Every single scene is like a smorgasbord. You know, you just have to sink your teeth into it. You're like, this is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Except for Jonathan. Jonathan's plain Jane. But I think that's Jonathan's function. In the movie, you know, my mom and I have this phrase, and I forget, we, we read it someplace, and it was actually in regard to, um, this is going to sound really weird to connect this to this movie, but it was in regard to Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty, like the animated mm -hmm. one, and the fact that Prince Philip is, quote, a nothing prince, mm -hmm. which is that he doesn't really have, like, a personality or a purpose beyond being adjacent to Aurora, mm -hmm. 
which kind of flips the script on Disney princesses in an interesting way. Not to go down that rabbit hole, but I feel the same way about Jonathan Harker. He's a nothing prince. He is only there to be adjacent to Mina and to connect the dots between Mina and Dracula. Yeah, because Mina couldn't be a solicitor then. Yeah, exactly. She could not by her own machinations have ever gotten to him. So Bram Stoker had to create some foil, some nothing dude to connect point A to point Z between the two of them. So that's interesting. Nothing prince. I like that. Well, and I think it's interesting when you look at some of the criticism that Keanu Reeves has gotten for his performance in this film. And I'm not just saying this because I'm like a Keanu fan. And like, (laughs) you know, I just think he's like, just this very special being in in Hollywood. But I actually think his performance works really well. Like the kind of weird, like stilted, awkward kind of performance where he doesn't quite feel like he's in place in this world. To me, that actually works for the character in this film. Like, especially when you're putting him up against this like suave, sexy, supernatural being. And then also against the other men who are all these sort of, I would say like almost comical archetypes of Victorian manhood. You know, you have the bold, loud American, you have the dapper rich guy, you have the learned, humble and kind of noble doctor. And then you've got this just like awkward dude who's like, I'm just a solicitor. I just, I just love this lady. And I don't know, you know, (laughs) I think the performance, it works for me. I had never had a problem with it. If you had made him too sexy or too suave, I think it takes away from Dracula. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. People dunk on him and Winona Ryder all the time, but I don't get it because I can't even possibly look at Keanu Reeves as like carrying the movie by any means. Yeah. When I'm looking at the portrayal of Lucy, the portrayal of... Dracula, the portrayal of Van Helsing, Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing is completely unhinged. So yeah, like I can't even pay attention to him in regard to everybody else in the movie. So I don't even, I'm like, he's a bit character. He's a side role, you know? I don't understand how people dunk on him so much. And I actually don't think Winona Ryder is that bad as Mina either. Yeah. I don't know what people expected out of that. And, you know, it's funny, Coppola actually specifically cast Keanu Reeves because he's like, we need a young, hot Hollywood guy to connect this to a younger audience. And he was just coming off of movies like, you know, Bill and Ted and was really, really, really popular at this point. I mean, it's pre-Matrix, but like not by that much time. I think the first Matrix movie was 97. So this was only five years before that, which is breaking my brain a little bit. But, (laughs) you know, he was coming off of a lot of really big ticket movies for him. So anyways, Don't even worry about Keanu Reeves. Yeah, he's fine. (laughs) Like, it's totally fine. I have a hard time with that criticism where I'm like, so Keanu Reeves is the hill that you're going to die on, but the rest of the movie you can't appreciate for the 10 minutes total that Keanu Reeves has any, like, meaningful amount, uh, you know, meaningful role in. Yeah. So I would say that if you're really going to get hung up on the Keanu Reeves thing, like, maybe just fast forward through his bits. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much else happening there. It's like... I don't know, even in the scenes where he's kind of the focus at the beginning, I'm like, you're focusing on the awkward guy over here when you've got weird ass Dracula, like (laughs) 
flinging swords around and you know prancing around in his long red robe like but that he's who you're like i don't know (laughs) yeah although if i were in uh jonathan's shoes i definitely would have left when i saw the blue flames you know when you're coming in on carriage and there's like blue flames and you're like what is that and then weird dude like grabs a sword off the wall swings it around his head cuts his own hand and then tosses his sword on the table and then afterwards he's like so diminutive about it he's like i'm so sorry i've offended you i do not understand your traditions you're like okay (laughs) also this might be a good segue into is jonathan harker gay or not i mean (laughs) in this movie specifically yeah well he's Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I I definitely think so. The story of Dracula has kind of always been queer coded. Yes. Whether or not you want to see that, the fact of the matter is Dracula has a too intimate to be called friendship relationship with Jonathan Harker, even in the book. Yes. He keeps Jonathan Harker there. His wives or brides end up, you know, seducing Jonathan Harker on his behalf and then he saves him. So even if you want to say like, oh, you're reading too far into it, that's okay. But there is an inappropriately intimate relationship that's happening between the two of them. Very awkward. It's very Frankenfurter coming into Brad's bedroom. Oh, yeah. Maybe not so overt. But but it is like that. You know, they're the only two people there with the exception of the brides. Jonathan's there way too long. He deliberately looks past all of these very strange transgressions that happen in terms of Dracula. And so when we see that portrayed in movies, there's a lot of literature about Nosferatu being queer coded and Max Schreck's portrayal and desperation and need and loneliness in that movie. There's also in some of the 60s and 70s portrayals, it was definitely more hetero, a lot sexier, but there were lesbian, you yes. know, vampires in those movies. While Christopher Lee definitely was like the sexy hetero Dracula, there were, you know, lesbian vampires and portrayals in those movies in the 70s. And now we're in 1992 and it's like, you know, Dracula's licking Jonathan's blood off of his razor. He's shaving him, which is kind of an intimate act. There are parts where Mina says that Jonathan doesn't want her to spend too much time with Lucy because I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't even know what the quote is exactly, but he doesn't want her to get too used to the rich lifestyle. And I'm like, he probably knows that you guys have kissed before. (laughs) That's probably why he doesn't want (laughs) you to stay there. And there's a connection there. So I don't know. In my watching now and considering the fact that Keanu plays Jonathan as a nothing prince in this one. It seems like he could definitely be gay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's also a quote, a sentence that Mina says in voiceover where she says she understands the true nature of her feelings towards her special friend now that she's married. And I was like, that definitely has to mean that she had sex with Jonathan and it was awful. Yeah. And now she's like, I totally wanted to bone Dracula. And now I just have (laughs) Jonathan. And I'm like, maybe that's because Jonathan is like... Not really into it. Yeah. He's going through the motions. He wants to, you know, get this better job so that he can support his wife because he thinks that's what he's supposed to do. Yeah. And then he gets to Dracula's, you know, mansion and he's like, oh. And then he has a blood orgy and he's like, (laughs) oh. Oh, I see. (laughs) I have grossly misunderstood (laughs) the way that I should have been pointing my life. But 
even if you don't think Jonathan is gay in this portrayal specifically, that's okay. There's some uncomfortably intimate parts with him and Dracula, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Well, and like never forget in the movies you were referencing before, Dracula's daughter, you know, I think some of these scenes actually point to Dracula's daughter and the the queer not so much coding as putting it in your face in that movie. Yeah. And I mean, as a parallel, Lucy and Mina kiss, you know, they spend so much time together. They're best friends. Lucy is very rich and wealthy and can schmooze with whomever she wants. But Mina, the poorer schoolmistress, you know, the working class woman, is able to kind of schmooze with her. And then there's the scene where they're like running through this maze and it's raining. And then they kiss at the end, right before you get, you know, Dracula, who's arrived at this point. They go to bed, they change clothes and go to bed. And then Lucy is immediately seduced by Dracula outside. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is pretty gay. Yeah. This is a pretty gay scene here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the way that they care for one another, Mina wants to stay with Lucy when Lucy is sick. She doesn't even want to go to see Jonathan, yeah. who is recovering from a severe brain fever. I mean, as you do. It just makes me think there's this this um, distance and separateness between Jonathan and Mina that in this movie indicates to me that they're not really in love and that they're just going through the motions because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, well, and I mean, as a story device, it's perfect because then when you bring in Dracula, who, you know, ostensibly, you know, he thinks that Mina is his reincarnated beloved, you know, and is demonstrating real passion and love and care and fire for her. Well, yeah, you know, it's perfect to have Jonathan being just kind of like, like, well, we're we're British in the 18-whatevers, so, you know, I guess this is what we do. You know, we get married, and I make my career as a solicitor, and you're a schoolmistress, and yay. We have 2.5 children. Yeah, exactly. whatever the average is was then. <laughs> yeah. It's using that vampire character, which, you know, would be used over and over and over again. And we see this with other horror figures, too, to sort of butt up against that sort of, like, monogamous nuclear family expectation you know of whatever era like you know here's the expectation and here's somebody going through the motions and their world is completely rocked when they meet somebody who lives outside of that and who experiences love and sex and passion outside of you know they don't even consider the expectations because they exist so outside of them and how that can be revelatory and traumatic and and all of the things you know and it causes a lot of consternation among the people around that you know everybody's world in this movie is rocked because you have this very very like sexually open being you know that's seducing people and drinking their blood and and you know everyone's like oh my gosh this is like an abomination this goes against god and life and society and everything we've known yeah and i mean Dracula keeps a harem of three brides at home to, you know, do whatever with. Apparently be as pets, because that's what he kind of treats them as. I mean, when they go after Jonathan, which they're clearly not supposed to do. And also another gay moment. Dracula says, he is mine. Oh, yeah. You know, he doesn't say he's my guest. He says, he is mine. Yeah. And Jonathan doesn't argue with that. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a kept man now, I guess. Yeah. He has these three wives and... 
when they do bad, he's mean to them and throws them against the wall. And then they kind of like come and, you know, kind of like sidle up to him like a dog or a cat. Yeah. And he like pats their heads and feeds them a baby like you do. <laughs> it's funny, though, at that point that Jonathan is uh, he's down with the blood orgy that's happening, but he doesn't get down with the baby. eating. Yeah. Yeah. He So he's one of those guys. Yeah. You know, he can go as far for him. Right. He can go as far as like having a foursome with three vampire women who, you know, <laughs> induct him into a blood orgy. But then when Dracula tosses him a baby to eat, he's like, no, I'm not down with that. Whatever. Whatever, yeah. Jonathan. Yeah. Way to be a party pooper uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> clearly the best way for this all to end is for jonathan to become he's going to be part of the brides yeah so jonathan becomes a bride as well yep he's a kept man with yeah. the brides and eats babies occasionally not all the time yeah whenever dracula has one to spare and then mina becomes dracula's like one true love bride yeah and they can still be there and cordial because obviously they need to be they're british yeah. they're going to be cordial and that's like best case scenario. Well, for a functioning, you know, polyamorous relationship among six people, you're going to have to be cordial, I think. <laughs> yeah, you can't can't have arguments about that. Yeah. Like no. we were supposed to get married, whatever. Forget about your career as a solicitor. You don't need to be one. No. And neither does Mina need to be a schoolmistress because Dracula is clearly filthy rich. Yeah. He's so, got you covered. Yeah. He'll take care of you. And the people in the village around Dracula's giant castle will keep you in babies, probably. Yeah, it's fine. It's it's totally fine. It's a perfectly fine arrangement. Yeah, like have an open marriage. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, do you really need to be legally married out there? Like, nah. you live in a village in a giant castle. It's yeah. going to be okay. I think Dracula could just say, here's my new wife and my new husband. And everyone would be like, Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> sure. That sounds great. We're perfectly okay with that. Hopefully the baby quota will not be increased. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're we're having them as fast as we can. <laughs> oh my God. And then Lucy can visit whenever she wants with her three men. Yeah. Like, clearly the resolution to this is that everybody has a chill open marriage and it's not a big deal. It's fine. Nobody has to die. Yeah. Maybe the ideal for this situation would be that Van Helsing never comes into the situation. No heads are cut off. Yeah. And everybody's just cool with it. I think Van Helsing is really like wrecking everybody's party here. He really is. He's an agent of chaos <laughs> coming in and shitting on everybody's parade. Yeah. And really, we just don't need him. <laughs> Although I will say that Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of Van Helsing is hysterical. In oh, this yeah. Movie. Wonderful. Wonderful. But yeah, I think we really got to the heart of the matter. We've, yeah. re- we've resolved the entire Dracula mythos. Yeah. In one episode. Yeah. We solved Dracula. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Let's talk about that street scene where Mina encounters Dracula for the first time on the street uh-huh. in London. And he's wearing his snazzy glasses and his top hat with his long hair. But is also emblematic of like every dude in public ever. <laughs> Like, he's oh, like, oh I bumped into you. Yeah. My apologies. But I don't know how things work. Yeah. <laughs> Please spend time with me. Explain. Oh, you're going to turn me down? Oh, now I'm going to force myself in front of you and demand that you spend time with me. And then when she's like, are you familiar with my husband? He gets really sad. And then she's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. And she totally, she totally gets duped by him. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I've seen that scene play out in bars way too many times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's such a common thing, too. Like, this is a very, like, 
I mean, you could see it anywhere, anywhere that you go out to a place and a guy's trying to introduce himself to somebody. He bumps into them. Yeah. Purposefully or like causes some incident that they would make it seem like they just organically, you know, talk to one another when in reality it was all contrived. Yeah. And she acts like any city woman would, I would say, like any woman who is wise to the ruse of men and is like, you can go buy a pocket atlas if you want, sir. Good day. Yeah. And then he like jumps in front of her and she's like, are you acquainted with my husband? You know, doing the the self-protection thing. Like, I have a boyfriend. I have a husband. Please stop talking to me. Yeah. But then he somehow gets into her good graces. She feels bad. He's like, I am but a poor lonely prince from come see the early motion pictures that are slightly pornographic with me yeah they no they're like fully pornographic i think and then he sexually assaults her yeah Yeah. well he tries to and then he's like no i love you too much it's like oh god and then he's like here come pet my dog i've got this dog that i've just been able to tame which is actually an escaped wolf from the zoo would you like to pet him yeah and then She's like, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah. I mean, which is the responsible thing to do, which yeah. is pet the dog. Yeah, it's not the dog's fault. No, he's just a wolf guy that got out. Yeah. It's their fault for putting the bars too far apart. Because that wolf gets out of there immediately. It's like, who was the irresponsible zoo designer here? Yeah. Who's the city planner in London? We need to write to them. Yeah. Excuse me. Make sure that the bars on your wolf cage are close enough together. Yeah. It's really not the wolf's fault. No. Yeah. That wolf <laughs> did nothing wrong. And then, of course, they fall in love, like you do. Yeah. You get uh, entrapped by a man and almost sexually assaulted and literally bitten by a vampire. And then he's like, would you like to pet my dog? And she's like, I think I fell in love with you. Yeah. It's practical. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. (laughs) I, I honestly didn't think about it like that until now. But he also says... I have crossed oceans of time for you. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good line. It is a perfect line. (laughs) And I read, I mean, this could be apocryphal, who knows, but I read that Gary Oldman only took the role because he wanted to know what it felt like to say that line to someone. And I was like, I feel like that might be a minor dunk on Gary Oldman's wives slash previous partners. Yeah. He's like, I never felt like I could ever tell them, I've crossed oceans of time for you. (laughs) Well, he was going through a divorce during the oh, film. Oh, yeah, that's right. And was reputedly kind of terrible to be on set with. So he's like, love isn't real. I would never say that to anyone. Yeah. He's very rock star about it. Yeah, it kind of feels that way. I guess that he and Winona Ryder had a big time falling out on set, but have since reconciled. And from what I understand, he was not great on set, but it never... Like, to be clear, it doesn't seem to have ever risen to the level of, like, assault or anything like that. He was just, you know, kind of a general pain in the ass to be around and, like, made her mad. But they've since, like, resolved and I guess are very good friends still. Oh, that's good. Which is good to hear because it usually doesn't go that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It usually just gets worse. Yeah. Wow. This movie is such a huge spectacle of a film. Yeah. Just, like, overall. It's gigantic. And you mentioned at the beginning of the movie that it kudos to Coppola for making this like a universal film, but like in 1992. Yeah. 
which I'd never thought about before. And as soon as you said that, I started like listening to the score, which is normally orchestral in a universal film. And it's like sweeping and big and grandiose. And these sets are the same way. Yeah. Um, it really does feel like the cross between a hammer film kind of filmed in that like set situation. And then also a universal film where you have this huge upbeat orchestral design specifically made to make the scenes feel as dramatic as they need to be and combine all that with sort of this like theater aspect to it where it looks like it could be on a stage well so some of that is because of the way they filmed it so going in that traditional you know universal like of the studio system like on sound stages and likewise hammer at bray studios this was filmed entirely on sound studio sets they did not do anything on location and that was because francis ford coppola was becoming kind of notorious at this time for his films going over budget and over schedule Um. and some of that was because of location shooting and so he was really cognizant of i want this to come in on time and on budget And I'm not going to contend with the elements, you know, needing to do all of these like exterior scenes and stuff like that that are so crucial to the film. So they filmed everything in Los Angeles on sound stages. And I think that really does contribute to the look and feel of it because that is that universal, that hammer feel of like these near reality, but these these very contrive these built worlds uh, which is the same thing you get in any sort of theater it's a world but it's a built world and it sort of pulls you into that magical built world of the story in a way that like location shooting which has its advantages too I don't think it does it in the same way typically definitely not no I would agree with you there you get this sort of like fantasy because they have to produce sunrise and sunset and artificial light and all of or or sunlight or whatever and it's never quite right and you can feel it yeah you know it's on purpose yeah and it gives it that like dreamlike quality which is really fantastic and in this case it's a movie that's shot in color unlike a lot of the earlier you know universal movies which makes it so much more sumptuous Oh, yeah. Really, really a treat to see all of that color. And there's some really beautiful sunsets in it and the choices of color. You know, Lucy wearing her red robe as she's taken by Dracula the first time. And Mina wearing her red dress when she's really like fully seduced by Dracula that night when they go on the date and she takes the absinthe. It really pushes the movie into that theatrical state. And, you know, in theater, they make deliberate choices with color and costuming because there are those people in the back that are not necessarily be able to see it. In this case, we don't have that problem, but Coppola still pushed and the costume designer pushed it into that like very, very, very highly colored, highly saturated kind of realm. Yeah. And it really, it just feels like a movie in the best possible way. And, you know, although, you know, there are a thousand reasons to you know shoot on digital or shoot on video or whatever and there are plenty you know plenty of things that i love that are shot those ways like this is like such a 35 millimeter experience and it just it feels like like cinema to me Mm -hmm. in a really like visceral way and i kind of love that about this movie like i don't know if you shot this movie today 
like and you shot it in like 4k high def blah 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 if it would be able to retain that same magic that the combination of like you know sound stages and 35 millimeter and all practical effects can really have certainly shooting you know a digital 4k ultra blah 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 whatever on location with cgi that's fine. Like, that's great. There are plenty of movies that I love that are shot that way. But this just, I think it's the combination of all of those, like, traditional cinematic elements that just really makes it magical. Yeah, and you don't see movies kind of produced in that same way very much anymore. Yeah. Where you really get that, like, hammer feel of being on the set with a big, you know, score. There are movies that, obviously, there's movies that have an orchestral score, but don't really have that feel. Yeah. Another thing that Coppola does really well is very steady camera shots Mm -hmm. where he works within the set. So, like, you're in a big set. You don't necessarily have, like, the camera that can, you know, move as freely as you would be outside or whatever. He does do some, like, cool kind of stop-motion-y stuff when we get to the point where Lucy is a vampire and when Dracula is, like, flying through the air as a bat. You know, we get some cool stop-motion stuff, which looks very modern, but still creepy. You don't see a lot of movies kind of filmed in that same way where you have the camera stationary and the actors move around the camera. Yeah. Now we see more the camera moving around the actors or the actors having stationary action in front of just one shot. It's very interesting to see a movie that's as late as this one doing that. I can't think of any other movies recently that have come out where I've really felt that sort of um, sense of space in a movie the yeah you know the closest one i can think of or the closest i guess groupings of films that are more recent would be the kenneth branagh perot movies oh yeah you know i guess part of that is the source material because they're based on agatha christie stories Mm -hmm. and he has very intentionally unlike and we haven't watched this yet but uh unlike what i have seen in clips from like, for example, um, Mike Flanagan's House of Usher, which mm-hmm. is really taking a traditional story and pushing it forward. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that if you're a Poe fan, that you will friggin' love it. I'm so excited. I know me too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the Poirot movies really intend to create the world of Agatha Christie and to be a period piece. And to have that kind of look and feel. And although they are shot with more modern technology, I think those are at least, for me, getting at a little bit of that more traditional film, like, you know, big costumed period without being like so totally over the top. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that's true. I just didn't think of that one because those have a tendency to be less horror and more, you know, mystery. Yeah, they're more thrillers. Although A Hunting in Venice is very good if you haven't seen that one. Yeah, I did like that one. Yeah, it's pretty good. But it is cool, too, that Coppola was, like, obsessed with getting everything in camera Uh and not doing so many fixes in production or, or in post. I thought that was really cool. There were some very gargantuan sets that had to be made and, like, a lot of extra work that had to be done in order to achieve that. Specifically, there's a scene where Jonathan is writing in his journal at the same time as being on a train. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they made a giant book and a large model train set 
to put in front of the camera. The giant book with the writing on it is put in front of the camera to make that in camera. Yeah. He did not want to use CGI. He used practical effects and in camera work. And I was just like, what a fussy old man thing to do. (laughs) It turned out really cool. It did. For the most part, it holds up. I think that the only optical effect that they did in there was the blue. Yeah, the blue flame. The blue flame, which, meh. But overall, the rest of it looks really good. Yeah. Well, I think that speaks to the power of practical effects. You know, CGI, the technology is getting better and better. But especially when you look at like those early digital effects from like the late 90s into the early 2000s, they're looking pretty dated at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, you know, a practical effect is kind of eternal. Yeah. Cough, cough, spawn. Cough, cough, cough. Oof. (laughs) Yeah, this movie, to speak about the, you know, the cost of this movie, cost $40 million. Which in 1992, like, you know, when I think about what movies today cost and and then translate $40 million to like 1992 money, that's a lot of money. According to usinflationcalculator.com, if you purchased, if in 1992 you purchased an item for $40 million, in 2023 the same item would cost million dollars okay yeah so So. still a huge friggin budget yeah but i would say i would venture a guess that a lot of production companies would not float because coppola's movies in the past had not been that expensive right i mean even the godfather 2 which i don't know how much the godfather 3 cost but the first godfather movie was 6 million the second one was like 16 million i think so for 40 million dollars to be shelled out for this dracula movie that's quite a bit of money. Yeah. I think it was worth it, though. Yeah. And I mean, these are sets that were probably not going to be reused. So like, unlike a Hammer film where you already have yeah. all that stuff built in, he built all these other sets and costumes and stuff. Speaking of costumes and sets, I did read that the Tales of Arabian Nights book that Lucy and Mina are giggling over at one part of the movie went missing. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so somebody took that shit, which is kind of hilarious. I know that a lot of the costumes have been featured in exhibits, and at one point, the cool musculature armor was on display at Francis Ford Coppola's winery, because you wow. know he has a winery. Of course he does. Yeah. How very Italian man of him. Yes. <laughs> Is he becoming Corleone? Michael Corleone? <laughs> Perhaps. So we talked about how we think Gary Oldman is amazing, and we talked about how you know people dunk on Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves all the time. But I did want to say that I think some of the best acting in this movie comes from the actress who played Lucy. Yes. Her name is Sadie Frost. She did not go on to act in a lot of other movies or bigger roles, I would say. She's played some bit parts here and there, some side characters, a couple episodes here and there of some TV. But she is among the best acting in the movie, I think. And I was really disappointed that she hasn't been in a lot of other stuff. But I will say that if you haven't seen this movie, she's definitely one of the big reasons to watch it. Definitely. She's really, really good. She is. She plays a great human character. And she also plays a great creepy, creepy vampire. Yeah. And Anthony Hopkins. I mean, we all know that it's pretty much a moot point, you know, now to say that Anthony Hopkins is a great actor. He just is he's incredible but his van helsing i don't think it gets very much respect yeah and it's just absolutely unhinged he's completely (laughs) inappropriate and wildly goofy 
he's kind of the link throughout the story of what they figure out is happening. And there's a quote, after Lucy has died, after he has cut off her head and nailed a stake through her heart, he's having dinner with Jonathan and Mina shortly after that's happening. And Mina asks, she says, "How?" this is a quote, how did Lucy die? Was she in great pain? And then on the screen, it flashes to that moment. And he said, yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head and drove a stake through her heart and burned it. And then she found peace. And then they're like, doctor, you know, like (laughs) in their like, you know, British offended affect. And I just thought that that was hysterical. It is such a goofy, funny scene right after Lucy has died. Oh, yeah. It breaks the tension beautifully because what you would expect in that moment is for him to be asked, was she in pain? And he's flashing back to this horrible thing. And he's like, you know, says something very comforting or very vague about her death. But no, he just says the thing. (laughs) He just says the quiet part out loud. Yeah. And Mina's scandalized. Yeah. And Jonathan, too. You know, they're both very upset. And then this is another, like, semi-sexual question, I feel like. Van Helsing asks if during the time when Jonathan was a prisoner of the brides if he drank their blood. Yeah. And he very unconvincingly says, no. Yeah. It's like, uh, okay. And I, and I, I mean, believe you, sir. Whether or not he did is, is really kind of irrelevant because whatever those, you know, Sister Agatha did at the convent has kind of, it's not really cured him because his hair keeps going grayer for some reason. Yeah. But he is not kind of in the throes of bloodlust like Mina and Lucy end up being. So he's de facto cured, I guess. And earlier in the movie, when Van Helsing is called to help them, he's actually discussing syphilis, like at one of those weird medical debate things where all the dudes are sitting in weird stadium seating in a circle like victorian scene setting thing like every like victorian era horror film you have to have the scene of like the scientists giving a presentation to a bunch of dudes in suits like sitting in this like you've all seen it like you can picture in your head what i'm saying like no matter what victorian thing you've watched it happens in every single one of them yeah for sure what are we talking about next time, Juliet? Well, so hilariously, we've been talking about all of like the cinematic technique and like, you know, this beautiful studio set shot 35 millimeter practical effect, blah, 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 higher art cinema. <laughs> We're going to go the opposite end next time. We are finally diving in to the world of trauma. And we're going to do arguably the best loved, most known, the sort of entry point for so many people, the original Toxic Avenger. I'm so excited. I'm so excited, too. We haven't done a trauma film yet. And this will be our first time to discuss trauma and Lloyd Kaufman and James Gunn and, you know, all of them kind of as a whole. I don't know how many other trauma movies we would ever talk about on the show. And this one's the most, you know. Yeah. The most well-known, so why not? Why not do that? It's a yeah. good time. It's a good time to do this one because, as many horror fans know, Toxic Avenger is being remade on a huge budget. Peter Dinklage will be playing Toxie. From what I've seen from the initial teaser trailers, they are kind of taking the spirit of Toxic Avenger, but taking, you know, uh, this creative team will be putting their own spin on it, which is great and fine. And I'll get into this a little more in our next episode. But the one kind of troubling thing to me is that it's way too polished to feel like trauma already. I'm just like, (laughs) like, 
it's not grimy enough to be trauma. And I don't mean like grimy in story. I mean, literally grimy. Like I know any of the actors. Right. I've heard of literally any of them. Yeah. That feels weird. Yeah. It's a little weird. (laughs) But, you know, trauma, it's a difficult thing to talk about because there are some really amazing things about trauma. You know, they are pioneers in independent horror and grindhouse cinema. There are also some really problematic things in their movies, which is why I've been a little hesitant to like dive into that world here on the podcast. But I've been rewatching a bunch of stuff and I feel like I've got a good handle on, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly of these films. So I'm excited to take them on. Yeah, me too. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. And hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.